0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Everyone
1: thinks that if they achieve the certain status or money or fame or a TV show or a big podcast or a great album or a film like I did or whatever, that that will heal and absolve These wounds and create like a certain solve to um, to minimize that shame or lack of self worth and I I think that's like there's a healthy aspect to that that forces one to become a creator or creating on some level but I realized and why partly why I satirized fame in the film was I had to like take the piss out of it all like I had to look at that which I thought would heal me in a way creatively or Um, Notoriety-wise, and because I knew that wasn't going to do it, even though I was craving it because of this wound. So I had to get really honest with it and satirize it because I know that deep down, that's as big of a mirage as anything.
2: That's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Justin, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thanks for having me, Shani.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure. So I found out about your story uh, because you wrote in uh, about your film, The Golden Age. And I think that the thing that really struck me was that uh, you wrote about this idea of this obsession that we have as a culture with fame, which I thought this is kind of a no brainer to me because it's so important because I think that often we've, you know, prioritized, you know, fame over mastery and craft. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, Oof. Well, I think,
1: you know, it's crazy. Our parents, I think, came from a generation where they, they kind of did what they felt that they had to do but didn't necessarily want to do. You know, they're, you know of course, having a traditional family. My father yeah. was an attorney. My mom was like um, a dance teacher. And, but secretly, my mom always wanted to be a singer. My dad was this really great saxophonist, and they both loved jazz. And the irony, and I talk about it a little bit in this book that accompanies the film that I'm releasing later, later this fall, is the irony is i became like the hybrid of what they really wanted to do at an, in a generation where they couldn't my dad wanted to be a musician my mom wanted to be a singer and it's like i became a hybrid of what they wanted to do which was kind of strange but i i've learned so much from them um especially like my love of music like my dad was an incredibly large beach boy beach boys fan and as a kid i just couldn't stand listening to that damn music But i didn't <laughs> but I, but i realized you know, I didn't realize Brian Wilson's genius as a child. And, and, and now I realize how much Brian Wilson's affected my life and how important they are in my life. And it was almost like I had to go through all this crazy tutelage with my father. He was like an alcoholic and abusive. You know, I got into it, into the film a little bit, but it was like, he was training me, you know, with all these jazz records and the Beatles and, you know, all these different bands, but especially the Beach Boys. And it's like, I get so obsessed and in recording and with all the production stuff and I can't just make a regular album. It's like, oh, here's me on piano singing. It's like, I have to do my Brian Wilson. And I I realized that was kind of the madness of being raised by my father. It was like he was training me for something that I didn't even know. That's what's so funny about like karma or understanding fate in some respect. And and my mom was just such a a joy to be around. And I, I feel like I've gotten all of their best qualities, but we also get our parents' worst qualities too, you know? Mm, so yeah. I was really inspired by how passionate they were about music. And, um, and you know, my father, I reconnected with him after 25 years of being estranged from him. I, and I wrote about that in the book as well. And, and, uh, and, you know, I talk a little bit about my relationship with him in the film, but you know he was on his deathbed and he he was like couldn't move and he, you know he his final parting words to me on oh, the last time I saw him before he passed away was like never give up you know no matter whether you're laying here like me and I can't get out of bed he's like never give up like keep going and it was it was really poignant because he was kind of like a little bit of a workaholic and this kind of Irish catholic you know second generation immigrant from from Ireland and he really uh taught me about hard work and I've i become a little bit of a workaholic, especially in regards to the film wearing a lot of hats. But there was an and and that can be, you know, not great for one's path. You know, you want to kind of have a balance in life, which I'm starting to learn to have more. But, you know, I got this work ethic from him that amidst whatever I had to go through with him, I'm so, <clears throat> so, so very grateful for it because there's a real joy in work. And uh and i think i wouldn't have had the ability to make this film or do anything i do creatively or just in life in general cuz i'm such a fastidious worker and planner and executor and and i love that you know so i'm really grateful to both of them for for those qualities especially just their love of music
2: you know yeah. I mean, you mentioned that, you know, your dad was an alcoholic, you became estranged from him. And yet, you know, in reflecting on this, you seem to have what appears to be an overwhelmingly positive, uh, you know, outlook on the impact that he had on your life. So I'm curious, you know, one, you know, where does that rift begin? But more importantly, what did you guys do to heal it? And and how did you learn to forgive, you know, whatever pain oh. he caused you?
1: Oh, geez. Wow. Yeah. Cause in the film, I, I really laid it out there that he was kind of like the antagonist of the film. And, um, and he was, you know, I, I had a really, really tough childhood with him. He was, I think, in pain. And maybe it was in part because he didn't follow his path the way he wanted to, whether it was music or something else, and kind of got forced into law, something his dad was a big, big judge back in the day. But, um, you know, it took some therapy. It took some introspection. I was estranged a, a from for a lot of years. There was a lot of abuse when I was growing up. And, you know, part of it, I think, is part of the um, devotional path that I explore a little bit in the film is <clears throat> once you hone in on, I mean, for me, the teachings from the East and a lot of my gurus from the East, they, they teach us about how this... Life that we're leading, it's very easy when you go through these trials and tribulations and have to walk through the fires either with our parents or with a lover or someone that beat you or abused you or, or, you know, ups and downs of life that this is part of our own karma, a part of our own fate. And it's very easy to have this perceived antagonist that's, um, keeping us down and ruining us of sorts. But really, this is just a manifestation of that which needs to be settled of sorts. So that's really kind of re- relieved it on some level. Like, It's very easy to point the fingers at both my parents um, for something that lasted a lot longer than most children could have survived. And I'm surprised today that I'm still alive here talking to you right now, given my past. This went on for many years, and it was chaotic. And, and I've had to do a lot of work to engender that forgiveness for him. So once I finished the film that helped allow room for me to forgive him. And um, I met with him after 25 years and we, you know, had a little bit of a shouting match, but by the end, he told me how much he loved me and he was sorry. And and, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, forgiveness is the only way to really heal those wounds, but you can't forgive unless you can also forgive yourself for, or at least, you know, learn how to take protection and take care of that, younger child self cuz there's a real broken part of myself from the past so i had to really like nurture this old this younger kid in myself that i think is hurt that they weren't able to parent themselves so a lot of it comes from forgiveness and that's really tough with someone who like for years tried to ruin me and um but when you forgive it allows that other person to forgive themselves or at least take a reflective image of their own madness so that they can try to build that up within themselves so the last few years my father he became like my best friend and I was ruined when he passed away and I never would have guessed that prior to making this film I was like I'm never going to talk to this guy again I mean he really went out of his way to ruin my life and I'm really hurt by it because we're like sponges as kids you know I mean I, I knew he had an alcohol uh you know he had he was dealing with alcoholism, but the funny th- not the funny thing is, the sad thing is, but the revelatory part of this whole conversation is his father, I, from what I gathered and understood, um, was a thousand times harder than him than he was on me. So it was really like, it was. even though I was hurt by what had transpired, I felt more sympathy and forgiveness of wanting to heal the little boy in him as much as the little boy in me. You know, he couldn't. Yeah come to terms and heal in the way that he had been hurt. And I think he carried that out with me. So it was, it was, it was an element of like fortitude and strength to say, I'm going to break this cycle for him and for myself. And once I was able to do that and really confront him on it and he took it into his heart, we became like best buds and it was almost like the past never even happened. You know, Mm -hmm. it was almost like we were erasing my past, my past with him and his past with his dad but it all comes from engendering a deep sense of love, humility, forgiveness, and respect for the madness of material life, and just really. So I, I kind of had to act like the healer in it, even though I was the most wounded, <laughs> or I felt like. But I wasn't the most wounded. He probably was. So it took this big, like, metaphysical stare at myself and going through therapy, and you know, really trying to work on the fact that. I had been the, through the ringer, but not nearly to the extent that he was. So I had to, I had to take a higher lens because I knew he didn't have the skill set in which to do so.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, hello?
4: they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: the thing that I think struck me even more about what you said is, I mean, your dad was an attorney and it's like, typically attorneys are, you know, pretty well to do. And typically the kinds of situations you've been in are, you know, ones in which people come from low income families. At least that's my perception. So what I wonder is, you know, when we see somebody like you, like, what do we overlook or how do we, you know, sort of just, you know, miss something like this happening? Cause it, it, I mean, just out of curiosity, did you grow up in difficult economic circumstances too?
1: No, it's quite the opposite. But you'd think like, Oh, this kind of happens with people who are like uh, not as well to do or whatever, but abuse, um, physical, emotional, sexual, uh, all of it that happens in every household, irrespective of, um, economic status. You know, this, these stories happen to an extent far grander than you'd think. And I had probably maybe had the same, not misconception, but the same belief as well. And, um, In many respects, I had a beautiful childhood. You know, it's it's so funny because even when you go through these traumas, those are the things that stick out because we're like sponges, and those are the things that palpably affect us the most. So it's hard for those not to override the positive experiences. But we had this nice beach house, and we did have some lovely like like uh, holidays together before things went sour and all that. But it's I think these, these happen in well to do families, middle income families, um, you know, low income families. I think it happens across the board. So my mom and dad got divorced when I was like seven, but the divorce proceedings in court, him being a lawyer, lasted till I went off to college. And wow. they never ended. And I was doing joint visitation with him and he was getting drunk. It was very abusive and but I knew this was part of his own pain. And in regards to him being a lawyer, like his dad was the son of an Irish immigrant. And his dad became like the first federal judge, uh, excuse me, the first Irish Catholic um Democrat to get appointed as a federal judgeship. So he's like, he was like a big deal. So my dad felt the pressure to be an attorney from his dad, who was so tough on him, versus pursuing music. So it was like, and I wasn't gonna go into law school to college. So it's like I had to break the cycle to follow my true inclinations in a way my dad maybe didn't have the opportunity to because his father was even worse towards me. And what's even crazier than that, when you think about this this play on karma, <clears throat> my mom and dad you know I think had a really deep, profound love for each other, and I think music was what bound them on some level and you know they were warring at each other for years, they were at war, Then my whole childhood was like a battleground, and I was like a soldier or like a pawn in this very strange battle and going in and out of court and going to see him and join visitation it was nuts. But to, to bring that karma play back into the conversation, my mom passed away just as I went into post-production on this film on my dad's birthday. And my dad, just as I was doing right before prepping for distribution, um, he passed away on her birthday, which sounds crazy. And I, I would tell people this like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I know. But that's that's it was almost like even in their parting from this earth and their disappearance from their body, they were teaching me something about, about love, about the sanctity of like, you know that this that this material life is kind of a game. If we can see it in a different context, it's no different than doing a film or a stage play and wearing a different costume. Like I had some karmic stuff I had I think I had to go through with them to pay off. Maybe I maybe they had been my children in another lifetime. I don't know, but it was palpably intense. But I just thought it was a very it was like their last parting gift to me was leaving this body on each other's birthday. So it was like, you know, I, 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 I brought, I engendered a lot of forgiveness towards my dad. Not, not as much. I mean, for sure, for all the abuse and what he had put me through and my brothers through. But it was more like, think about that. If you really wanted to do whatever it is you wanted to do, but you felt pressure to do something that your dad did, and and you had to do that. I mean, that would cause a lot of misery. And I think a lot of that generation followed through on careers or beliefs or expectations sometimes even just having a family and kids where they wanted to do something more risque whereas in our generation it would be unheard of not to pursue what we want to do in a way that they didn't have the option to so i think that's where i engendered a lot of forgiveness towards him if that makes sense
2: yeah it does so did you ever tell anybody like a social worker or anything like that or and, and you know why don't people tell somebody when this happens
1: well this is where it gets tricky first of all my dad was a very tricky lawyer a very good one and told social workers therapists people knew about it told the judges but he worked with all the judges in courts so he kind of had a little bit of a different angle and our favoritism perhaps in the in the legal system a lot of our attorneys that we hired were afraid to take him on because he was so intimidating um and you know what's interesting about relationships and why I've kind of been on the sidelines for a while, not in one is it's really important. You know, I don't know who said it, but you know, the person you marry or or end up with as part, a long-term partner is like one of the most important decisions you'll make in your life. Because on some level, he, he was, he was so sadistic in the battle and was untruthful in court. And you know, it's easy to see it as like, oh, my mom and him were, my mom was trying to resolve it. My dad was being vindictive. That was basically the long story of it. But if you flip it, and now that I have a little bit of distance from it, even though, yes, we told social workers, therapists, et cetera, and we had all the evidence in court, but we were kind of had the deck stacked against us with lawyers that were intimidated by him as well as him knowing everyone in the courthouse at which we were Um. Uh, you know, going to court with in terms of the judges, et cetera, is really now that I pull back and take like a wider lens of this whole thing, I could really see that my mom, my dad, even amidst that, were deeply in love. And for whatever reason, it didn't work, probably in regards to my dad's alcoholism. But it was easy at at the time. It was, it was like, oh, this is happening because they they hate each other. And it's like, well, if you do the flip side of it, it's like, you know, I, I say in the book, in the opening of it, in the intro, is, um, it's a thin line between love and hate. That song is like the the soundtrack to aptly describe my parents' plight. So even amidst what was going on, I think it was really reflective of how much they loved each other. And maybe it couldn't work out because my dad didn't have the strength or wherewithal to escape this career. I'm not sure you ever wanted to do and um, used alcohol as a, a way to pacify the madness. But I saw it as all that warring back and forth as like a deep love that they were both wounded from it and then tried to like,
2: I don't know, maim each other,
1: (laughs) if that makes sense, in the aftermath.
2: Yeah, you you mentioned being, uh, you know, kind of on the sideline when it comes to relationships because of this, and that actually kind of made a perfect segue to my follow-up. How did your relationship with your father end up affecting your relationship with your mother as well as your relationship with other people in your life? Oh,
1: God damn. This is like going to be like a therapy session.
2: (laughs) I've been been known to do that to people.
1: (laughs) No, thank you. These are good questions. Damn. Well, my relationship with my mom got skewed because it was hard to discern whether she was protecting us or she wanted to combat him and give him a taste of his own medicine. So it was like very hard trying to figure it out. It was like my brothers and I, My brothers and I were like kids, but it was like we were the parents while this was all going on as young children because we could see how vindictive and crazy this all is. So my relationship with my mom was affected by it because we kept asking her, can we just walk away and move away from this? Like we were trying to move to California, but it was like this, you know, we're trying to get some settlement, but my dad was never going to settle because they were steeped in vindication. So it got really ugly with my mom and I think she tried to take him on in a way she wasn't prepared for and I think it kind of ruined her. And I think that was my dad's plan of which he told me he was going to do from a very young age. So it was like he set out to do something. We told her and she couldn't see that he was doing it while it was happening. So that was hard. And it made me feel a little unsafe around her as well as, of course, being unsafe around my father because of his sadistic abuse. But in terms of relationship with others, I think when you go through some intense shame and pain. Well, really, you know, abuse and trauma, you 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 inherit a, a sense of shame whether you like it or not. And, and there are different levels to this game, but, you know, more often than not, you know, the more intense or the longer duration of it, the deeper levels that you have. And mine lasted longer than most. I really shouldn't be alive on some level after, you know, telling people the real deal story. But I'm grateful because it was just, it was heavy. It went so long. And so with other people in terms of relationships, whether it was partnerships or, you know, romantic relationships and such, when that shame is so thick, if you don't process it, it, it's impossible to be in a relationship. So what, what gets incurred from shame is the, it's not even really the inability to love someone. I'm always like, I'm like a great boyfriend. But what frustrated so many women that I was with was I wouldn't allow them. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I was unable to ac- accept their love because that shame was so deep in terms of um, that worth, that like self worth thing. And I think a lot of artists <clears throat> have some kind of fractured past. Which is what makes them want to create. And that's what makes their their art and their creation so interesting and beautiful because it's coming from a place of there was some fracture there. They're trying to put the pieces back together. So I'm cognizant of that. Yet at the same time, I really had to nurture that kid in myself and 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 rebuild that ability to say, Yeah, I'm 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 worth being loved, you know. But I I it gets very sinuous in terms of how deep that um, those strains of uh, that bedrock of your own, like foundation can get cracked that if you don't go through and process this stuff, you'll never, whatever it is you'll do, you'll never feel enough. And it's like, we see a lot of people doing that out in culture now in terms of being famous or social media. And everyone thinks that if they achieve this certain status or, Money or fame or a TV show or a big podcast or a great album or a film like I did or whatever that that will heal and absolve these wounds and create like a certain solve to, um, to minimize that shame or lack of self worth. And I, I think that's like a, there's a healthy aspect to that that forces one to become a creator or creating on some level, but. I realized and why, partly why I satirized fame in the film was I had to like take the piss out of it all. Like I had to look at that, which I thought would heal me in a way creatively or, um, notoriety wise. And because I knew that wasn't going to do it, even though I was craving it because of this wound. So I had to get really honest with it and satirize it because I know that deep down that's as big of a mirage as anything. So that's where it kind of came from. And I, 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 <laughs> Yeah, so I I think in relationships now I'm feeling like ready to get back out there and get back in one when that's time, you know, when it when it's fate steers that my way. But I think it was challenging, and partly, you know, I just we all kind of date the wrong people on some level for many years until we realize we're not. I think there's also elements where we can't help but be attracted to aspects of our parents because that's how we were raised and we're sponges. And I don't know anybody that doesn't date their parents on some level. So, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I think that's pretty apropos. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, now, I'm now cognizant of what I was once attracted to. And mm-hmm. I realize that those archetypes, as well as with friends, that those archetypes are very reflective of the archetypes at which I was raised, hell or high water, even if it's the worst thing for me. So now I'm like attracting a different vibration of person because of the work I've done. And I think that that's where I'm excited in terms of where I move forward from here. But it took a long, arduous process, and I'm not. And, and there's a lot of people in my family that can't do the same or are still yeah. steeped in denial about it. And God bless them for wherever they are on their path. But for me, it was like I was suffocated until I addressed this. So I had to confront not only my longings for fame and whatever, thinking that would sort of heal these wounds. Or hence me satirizing it, as well as really getting honest and really like gangster deep about how wounded I was. And that was, that's a painful admittance to oneself. And that's a painful admittance to the world. Cause I would never, I never wanted to make a film and be like, Hey, here's all, here's what I've been through. What do you think? (laughs) Like, I didn't want to like, just put all my stuff out there, but I felt like I had to be so viscerally honest about what I had been through, even though it was so uncomfortable. It still is to this day, knowing that I put it out there because I felt like that was the only way I could heal from this is by slaying the beast by being gutturally, transparent, and honest in a way that still frightens me to this day.
4: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
2: Yeah. So one last question about this, and then we'll start getting into the actual work um, and really deep diving into this whole idea of fame. Did you yourself ever turn to drugs or alcohol as a byproduct of this? Uh, A little bit. Um,
1: there are other people in my family tree who have been steeped with alcoholism, but fortunately, I missed that that strain, and that shows up in different siblings usually when amidst um, amidst these situations. But you know, I, I can drink occasionally um, and be fine with it, but I don't normally drink anymore. Um, I struggled with cigarettes for a lot of years, and I think that was from what I've learned. Like in, in the lungs, that's where we hold our grief. So a lot of smokers you know, I have some, no, I'm not saying all across the board. I mean, nicotine is so damn addictive, but a lot of smokers from what I've read and discussed with them and read about is that, um, you know, we hold these like, like gobs of grief in our, in our lungs. So we want to kind of anesthetize um, ourselves from feeling them um, or feeling those wounds. And that's what, that's what I felt like I was doing for a lot of years. And, you know, I played around with psychedelics and done all kinds of things and ayahuasca and all that stuff. So, I mean, there's yeah. always like a dipping of my toe into that water, but I've never felt like, oh, I need these things or I've had uh, a strong addiction. If anything that I became addicted to is what I um, alluded to earlier with my father. If I have like one Achilles heel, it's it's a double-edged sword. It's my saving grace and it's my Dan uh fall down. And it, that's workaholism. Mm-hmm. And there's no way if I hadn't become a workaholic, having witnessed my dad and programming into me right or wrongly hell or high water whichever way you know like don't be a bum work hard never give up you know like instill this work ethic in me that was kind of like i have to like i had to take a look at that too because that can be an escape from living a balanced life from having a healthy relationship or being an obsessive careerist or wanting to show everyone what you can do or becoming a perfectionist or controlling you know like all those themes come into that workaholism so it's my greatest asset there's no way I would have been able to make this film um, and wear as many hats if I did if I didn't have that but at the same time that can be an Achilles heel far more than any drug could ever be and and now that the film is <clears throat> and I'm promoting it um, outside of that it's like rediscovering my life even though I know there's a million other projects I'm ready to take on next it's like I really have to step back and like almost like reconfigure and reformat my life like you do like a hard drive on your computer because i've been working with to-do lists and going, you know, 90 miles an hour for so many years, maybe since i was a kid, that i'm now learning to slow down and being like it's okay to to t- take a step back from that because work calls and maybe isn't although it feeds me in many respects it can also kind of be not only my achilles heel but it might kill me if i do it to the same extent i've been doing it my whole life
2: I think I can relate. Uh, I I think that (laughs) makes a a sort of perfect segue to talking about this whole idea of, of, you know, fame for its own sake, but what has been the trajectory that led you into filmmaking, you know, post high school, college, all of that. How did you end up here?
1: Sure. I was going to go to law school. Like my father, like I mentioned earlier out of college, um, I was in Washington DC, uh, interning for Eric Holder, who was the U S attorney under Obama prior Mm -hmm. to then. Uh, And I was just, that's where I was going. And then I went and see this double feature in DC and it was Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction, two very seminal films at the time. And, uh, you know, something about those themes of hope and, uh, redemption and justice and, uh, in, in the Shawshank Redemption and then just the style and the panache of Pulp Fiction. I was a Tarantino fan already, but, and I was like, you know what, I want to do this. Like, so I came and I've always wanted to be an actor and I did it a lot as a kid. So I came to Hollywood and uh, you know, I started doing acting gigs and TV and commercials and film and I was loving it and still do love it. I think of myself as an actor first and foremost, and I want to continue doing that. But the business has changed so much since those like films, those independent films in the nineties really, you know, I think gravitate a lot of people to LA wanting to do something of a similar ilk. And um and as I kept doing acting gigs, I started playing music and then Released an album, and I was like, "Oh, I love this too." Okay, what do I do? So then I was kind of at a crossroads. You know, I I wasn't getting uh, out for the bigger roles, which I wish I had, which is you know a lot of people's story here in LA. And I said, "What am I going to do?" So I wrote a script, and I wanted to, you know, the old joke. Well, I really want to do is direct, but I mean, I really did want to direct something. I've been watching all these independent films and directors, and I'm like, I can do this. I've been on set. I I know what's going on. I, I, I think I can do this. And it was really about. Stepping into myself as an adult from that kid who had been kind of wounded, like, it was like trusting myself, you know? And I think directing for me was very important because it allowed me to, like, trust myself as a kid where I felt like, you know, I trust myself as an adult, whereas as a child, I was, I, I you know, I was, like, the same way as, as an adult as I was then in terms of, like, wearing a lot of hats, but... You know, there was still that wound. And it's just like, I want to step into my shoes. I want to have the final say. And I trust that I'll be able to do this. And uh, there were a lot of times where I was on independent films where I'd see them move on from a scene that wasn't done. I'm like, oh, the film's screwed. Because if we don't have that scene, we're done. But other people who were behind, you know, the producer or director couldn't see it. And I, and I know it's such an inexact science making a film. So I wanted to put myself in that position. And I'm so glad I did. So I started writing the songs as if they were scenes in the film. And then writing the script and recording the songs as like, uh, with the tempos and the, you know, and the songs, like rough tracks in the studio. And then the script, that whole process took about two years. And I just, it, I don't know how I made it upon reflection, but it was like one of those things where you, if you have to make a film whether you want to or not, if it's part of your fate, whether you've got the money or not, or whether you have the time or not, it will like take you over. Like I was working with superhuman strength. So if you like gave me like $10 million and told me to make the golden age again, there's no way I could do it again. I'll, I I could make another film, but I couldn't make that one again because it was like, it was almost like a purging, you know, like a boil that needed to get lanced. It was t- So moving to directing made a lot of sense. And then I, I'm not a really big fan of musicals per se, but I don't like how in musicals there's lip-syncing. So I said, well, why don't we make a musical? Let's get deep on your own past as well as where you're headed next on the devotional path. Let's see if we can do an album about this. Let's try to spin the oeuvre and do something that's kind of narrative, kind of documentary, and we're not really sure what it is. And and uh, and let's get really honest, you know? And that that's where it all kind of came from, and I... I don't know how it came to fruition. And I worked on this for years and years and years, but I'm so pleased with how it's turned out. You know, I'm so, so pleased with it.
2: So I think that all of us in our lives have that sort of moment of seeing that sort of double future, you know, where it's one road versus the other. And I wonder why you think it is that so often people don't choose the one they want, but choose the one that they need to do or choose the thing they think they should do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's fear. I think it's fear. I think it's hard to, and this is why I think I look up to a lot of iconoclasts, like, you know, like Bob Dylan and Harry Nilsson and George Harrison and John Lennon and all these musicians who kind of marched to the beat of their own drum, you know, like they're iconoclasts. Like they were singing about stuff that not many people were same thing with filmmakers. We could go down the list you know, lately I've been like obsessed with Dave Chappelle for some reason. He's a brilliant (laughs) stand-up, But the reason I'm so obsessed with him lately is not only how good he is, but how original he is. It's like he's storytelling and then nailing you with the punchline, but being poignant while he does it. It's like, I'm really drawn to these people that are like hell or high water. I'm going to do something unique and no one else may get it, but me. And that's okay. And that takes a certain bravery, you know? And I was at a crossroads in terms of do I want to march to the beat of the drum that everyone else here is in town? I'm like, no, I don't. And that takes, and that's fearful because I can already see like there's elements of the golden age and there's a lot of double entendres in it. And there's a lot of devotional fodder in it that maybe the zeitgeist or where the society is right now in terms of some of the lyrics are seeing Maya as a metaphor for the illusory energy of the material age. Like it, it's a satire on so many different levels that I'm not saying like the culture maybe isn't hip enough to get it right now, but the zeitgeist is kind of entrenched in that whole idea of being known in social media right now that it's like, there's elements that it might go over people's heads right now, but I, I know this is going to catch it. It's already is catching on with a lot of people right now, but a lot of devotees are spiritualists, but I'll, I'll it may be something that will just continue to gravitate and grow, but I had to trust that even if it meant I was going to alienate some people or maybe they weren't going to get it or this is like, wait a minute, what is this film about or is this real? And what's funny about when I when I released the film, like people who I don't know as well as people who do, do, everyone's so entrenched in wanting to know what's real and fake with the film and that kind of style of partly narrative, partly documentary And it's funny to me because we're so interested in this like salacious storytelling or or storylines of like Twitter and what's going on in culture. Like everyone wants to know what did she say or what happened there. Like they want to know the real nitty gritty of it. And I kind of wanted to take you know the wind out of the sails of how entrenched we become in other people's lives as like what's real and what's fake. And it's 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 almost like sometimes I feel like I. Our culture is very gossipy. I'm like, well, if we're going to get gossipy or we're going to get kind of weird about like what's happening, I'm going to create this character, but instead of making it fictitious and satirizing it in a comedic light, I'm going to satirize it and look at my own stuff but get really honest with it and not be coy about it. And I think at the end of the day, when people ask me what it's about, I still think the golden age is a comedy. But it's not a comedy that's like trying to make you laugh. You know, because sometimes when you watch in a comedy, you get, you know that the laugh is coming. So you're kind of like on your, uh, you know, at the edge of your seat waiting for when it's time to laugh. But the Golden Age is kind of like a wink, wink, are you in on the joke comedy? It's like a satire that doesn't hit you unless you're hip to the game. So, so yeah, that's kind of where it's all coming from right now. And I, I feel like I had to do something to honor all those icon iconoclastic artists that like just hit me so deep because I know they were doing something at the, at the time people were like, this is crazy. You know, you, you why don't you do this instead? Like a romantic comedy or why don't you do this thing, which would be a little smarter or do a TV show of 10, ser- 10 part series instead of this or whatever it is. And I really admire people that say, I'm going to do this <clears throat> as well as all the people that we don't know that are doing that, that aren't famous or haven't been discovered that are doing really compelling work, whether it's writers or poets or artists or whatever. I think, you know, there's, there's a certain like wanting to refrain from what everyone else is doing and really honoring what, you know, deepest in your core, you have to do, or else you'll go far madder than, than had you not taken it on at all. So I think that's where it came up for me.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's it's interesting for you to to bring up this whole idea of fame and marketing to the beat of your own drum, because my last book that I did with a publisher was called an audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake. Uh And the, the you know, the we opened the book with the story of Daft Punk. You know, oh, I think one, one of the things I said is in a culture that basically is obsessed with attention, you have two guys who basically have chosen to intentionally make themselves more and more anonymous as their work <laughs> has become more and more known. And, I
1: know, totally. It's a great reference, jeez
2: but Yeah, and I, I think that, that that to me is really kind of an interesting jump off point for us to kind of deep dive, or dive deeper into this whole idea of, of fame, because you know I one like why do you think that we have this sort of obsession with this idea of of fame? Uh, because I think you pointed out, which funny enough will probably be the title of the interview, is that this isn't going to heal our wounds. I can tell you, I wrote a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and the problems in my life didn't go away. In fact, I was probably more insecure after that than I was before. But I think there's this idea that we have, and i I remember Josh Ratner uh, was on Sam Jones podcast off camera and he said that. You know, if you're not grounded, a career in the arts is rigged for dissatisfaction. Uh, totally. which really stayed with me. And and so I wonder <clears throat> one, why do you think this is? Like why are we so obsessed with this idea? What are the the really negative consequences of it? And you know, what are the positives of letting go of that need for validation from the external world, particularly when it comes to creative work?
1: Oh my God, such good questions, man. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let me first say, and thank you for the daft puck punk reference. And I wasn't necessarily familiar with their work, but I knew of them. And I'm sure you've seen the documentary on them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That was why we did it. Cause I remember, oh, yeah. you know, I watched, I was with a friend in Colombia. We we're trying to figure out what the introduction to my book was going to be. My friend said, Hey, come down right. to Columbia. Let's hang out for a week. And so I went there and we watched this documentary and I said, that's it. That's the story. That's the story. We'll open the book with. And because it was the, the crazy thing, the two things that really struck me about that story were when they got the first record deal, they were meeting with uh, record executives from Virgin and the record executives showed up in a limo to pick them up. And they said, we don't want to be seen getting into a limo we'll take the subway and we'll meet you at the restaurant <laughs> totally. which that's i mean and they then they took you know when they did coachella which that was insane like that it went viral on youtube instead of actually keeping any of the money for themselves they literally spent all of it on the production
1: totally um, totally i love that that's i know i remember the yeah the documentary hit me too dude um yeah what a great reference thank you for that that's a great metaphor to jump off on um Well, first of all, those guys, you know, watching that was very humbling for me. And there are stories like that. Um, Searching for Sugar Man, Sister Rodriguez. I don't know if you heard of that one. I've definitely heard of that one. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, you know, kind of like just fell out of the limelight after doing like a couple of studio albums. And there's a lot of like interesting artists, Scott Walker, 30th Century Man, you know, a lot of about these profiles about these idiosyncratic artists that kind of shy away from the limelight or for whatever reason, good, better, and different. But, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm on the same page as Daft Punk with that. I, I, think, I think what we're going to see over the next decade or two, if not longer, if not shorter, is people refraining from it all <laughs> and uh, doing a strong body of work. And then you find out about them later and be like, holy crap, because it's a very mad age right now in terms of people running around doing whatever they can to be famous and my daft punk version was i wanted to make maya o'malley the lead protagonist famous and the people that don't know me that watch the film start wikipedia and after like how come i've never heard of this guy and they can't find out anything on them and and it's almost like that's the comedy of the golden age is how entrenched people now want to know how come i didn't hear about this guy it's almost like a, you know, a play on the play within the play itself. It's, I would be more interested in making him famous than I would even myself, because it seems like everyone who achieves this type of notoriety on some level can't help but get, go crazy because there's no place to go but down once this happens. And I think Daft Punk was very aware of that. And um, you know, there's this term in the East and one of my gurus talk about it, it's called pratishta and pratishtha is, uh, the, like, uh, the Hindi word for like name and fame and worldly prestige. And they, they talk about it in, uh, this one guru, Srila Maharaj. he's so deep. He like talks about, um, pratishta is that that's the last stage before true surrender on the devotional path. Like that's the last snare or crosshair of Maya or like that which seeks to take us away from our devotion um, is this need to wanting to be known. And it's not even like really famous per se. I mean, you could live in an ashram and still have that. Well, I want to be the head cook. You know, it's like that whole ego, that egoic like I want, you know, what I deserve or I want to show my talents or I want like that whole thing. It's like it's beautiful. It's a wonderful display to show your creative talents and have people revel in it and work in it i'm not like adverse to that but there is a flip side to that if you're not detached from the fruits and rewards of your labor you know like if you're not attached to you know the outcome in a way that we're so taught to can't help but enjoy or be craving on some level so in terms of like the negative consequences of all this i think I don't know. I think the people that I really relate to, you know, it's so funny you mentioned that Daft Punk because that that um, documentary hit me so hard. But there's so many people that I look up to that they're wise enough to see that that's a ruse. And I think the negative consequences are everyone is chasing this one thing, or not this one thing, but everyone wants to be known. I'd I i I'd be lying if I said, I don't have it myself. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? I, the golden age, I want the whole world to see it. And I believe in it, not because I had anything to do with it. I just think it's a strong piece of work. In the same way, I'll someone else's album or someone's painting is like, I'll tell people like, you got to see this. It's amazing. Or a film or something. But it's not like, I think when you can get to where you're working as an artist and you're so entrenched in what you're doing and can stand behind it in the way those iconoclastic directors or whoever can say, yeah, I did it. And I trust this. And if it was just for me, then that's enough because it's so beyond the ego in terms of what we're doing. And the reality of the whole creative game is when we're really connected, we're really acting like a conduit or a puppet to something that's much greater than ourselves in terms of like being like a channel through whatever divinity or the universe or divine inspiration, et cetera. But I think the negative consequences comes in because I think it has the, I just think it has the potential to ruin so many people and we see how many it does. So I think the trend in the next 10 or 20 years is going to be people that completely shy away from this and just do a complete body of work. And, um, and and that that and then we find out about them later. And we already can know it's already happening like people are like, "Hey, there's this singer-songwriter from the 60s and 70s, you heard of them?" And it's like, you know, there were people that were kind of hip to this game earlier than what we're discussing right now, but I think this age old thing of you are how well you're known is very prominent right now, but I think it's going to become a ruse down the road. I think it's almost going to be embarrassing if it continues to happen yeah. to the extent it does because there's so many people that are listened to in front of a microphone that part of my con, but I I don't think they're like necessarily (laughs) qualified to be, but it doesn't matter. It only matters if you're being, you know, if you got a bunch of people of, you know, a bunch of followers or a bunch of likes or a bunch of movement behind you, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily compelling at that, what you're doing, if at all, you know? So I think that's a, it's a very funny time of our existence. And I, I, I think following the credo of of people like Daft Punk, I mean, or, you know, all these different iconoclastic artists, some of which we don't even know of and may never know of. I think there's as much beauty in that as there is in this idea of becoming known for our creations because we know at the core of our being, whether we're entrenched in this business or not, that that, there's no... The upside isn't what we've convinced itself we think it is, you know?
2: yeah. It's funny you say that because, you know, my roommate and I often have, you know, talks about this. I'm just like, yeah, I want millions of people to listen to Unmistakable Creative. And at the same time, I would be okay if none of them had a clue who I was. I would in fact prefer that. I would rather them know nothing about me and only know about my work.
1: It's kind of a relief. And the thing that's interesting about Daft Punk and Bob Dylan and all these people from, you know, from a different generation that are like, oh, wow, they are really marching to the beat of their own drum. We knew nothing about them because the channels were fairly restricted where we couldn't really know much about them. Obviously with Dylan, we knew more about like, Oh, he was dating this person. He went to, you know, upstate New York to record this, you know, like, but we didn't really know that much. And now in this day and age, it's like, it's almost, you can't be known if you don't reveal it all. And even if you do reveal it all, you've got to self-market yourself to death, which is something that most artists cannot do. Myself included are not really built for that. Like I'm a creator. I'm not really looking to like market myself. And, And the people who are very successful, I think successful in this day and age market themselves pretty well, but that doesn't necessarily necessarily mean they're talented at that, which we, where they, which they do.
2: Yeah. So no, I think, I, I've, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I've said it before. I've said, look, there's people who can build massive audiences because they're great marketers and publishers will literally give them a book deal. And if that author is like, Hey, I want to print a book with, you know, pictures of my face on it, that people can use as toilet paper to wipe their asses. People like a publisher, will be like, yeah, we can sell that. Of course.
1: Well, you know what? In my opinion, there's going to be a downside to all this. There's going to be a grand reckoning. And if you can't see the mirage of material life of that, which it will continue to uh, reflectively imbue upon our lens, whether we like it or not, there's a downside to all this. And I say God bless to all those people that have their big followers and are always on the line. But it's like, I'm more interested in creating art. and I And sometimes I see all these people doing this for like five and 10 years, and they have all these followers and they're selling some poorly written book or whatever they're doing but it's like in 10 years it's going to be like what did i create just a lot of like self-spin about myself or interesting instagram stories like i don't know it just seems like there's going to be a downside or a reckoning to all this so uh, my job personally as an artist feels like just to follow the lead of you know you know the credo of someone like daft punk i just think it's genius what they did they just wanted to hold their masters and create what they wanted to do and i think that's that's all you really want to do is just do something that's so unique to what's going on and what's so unique in, in honoring yourself. And I think there's going to be a reckoning. I, I Mark my words, in like 10 or 20 years, it's almost going to be embarrassing. And there's a lot of celebrities now that were once celebrities in the 80s. I was listening to Rob Lowe talk on, I think it was Joe Rogan, and he was saying – you know, who the hell would want to be famous now? It's like, you can't go anywhere. Like, if we were going out and partying like we were back in the day and there was the paparazzi, we'd be dead. We wouldn't have had careers. Yep. And and I think there's an element of like, uh you know, I don't think anybody wants to... I think the the ones who have had their brush with it are kind of staying on the sidelines a little bit because you can't even say anything now without <laughs> like, you know?
2: Yep. Trust me, I can I can relate to some degree having had a brief moment on reality TV. So, but I... I think that really does make just a a beautiful and really thought provoking way to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think
1: it's, um, I think, I think, you know, when we have those moments in life where we go up and down and we look ourselves in the mirror and be like, where am I at? What am I doing? I think what makes it unmistakable is, you know, what we've talked about throughout this episode is, is. Sometimes we have to trust that that which it is we're creating or offering or serving is is so ingrained with that which we have to share or create or, you know, expose to the masses, regardless of whether anyone understands it but us. Even if that audience could just be that one person, are we willing to do that versus do what we know maybe our parents want us to do or our boyfriend or girlfriend or wife or or something that society will deem more acceptable. Like I really respond to those that can unmistakably follow their own path, hell or high water, regardless of what anybody thinks about them. whether whether anyone even gets it, except themselves. Like are they still willing to proceed? And those that continue to say, "Yes, that's what I'm going to do," like I applaud them to the ends of the earth. And that is the fame that I'm looking for, because that is its own like meritocracy in terms of like a weight, it's a weight, it's a currency that extends far beyond money, that stands stands far beyond followers. That's really stepping into the shoes of a role that you know is so deeply ingrained in your soul that no one may ever understand, but you potentially, and you're still willing to walk through it. That's uh, that's what I'm looking for. And I think that's the unmistakable part of creativity that I hope more people are inspired to carry out for themselves.
2: Wow. Uh, this has been really, truly amazing and beautiful. Um, yes, yeah, hey man. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom, your story, and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, and everything else that you're up to in the world?
1: Sure. The golden age... Uh, by Justin Connor. It's a film on Amazon Prime. The reviews have been outstanding. Go check it out. Uh, if you have an Amazon Prime account, it's free. Uh, the album, Justin Connor, The Golden Age, is on all streaming platforms. The book is entitled A Day in the Lies, and that's going to be released on all fine bookstores and Amazon by Christmas. And you'll be able to get a hardbound signed copy at justinconnor.com by the same time at the end of the year. And, um, you can keep in touch with me on social media. I am Justin Connor. And uh, yeah. Incredible. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to love to connect with people. You know, what's happening just real quick is people have been seeing the film that have been through some of their own traumas. They're really healing from watching the Golden Age. So for some of your listeners who have been through The Ringer themselves, uh, you're definitely going to want to take a check at it. Because uh, people are coming to me saying I went through the same thing or having similar iterations and it's by proxy healing some of their own healing process and fostering like their own stuff that maybe they haven't looked at. So anybody who's been through the ringer and walked through their fire, I think the golden age is up, uh, up your alley.
2: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the unmistakable creative podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Hold up.